going to talk about sound knowledge today. All of us probably know somebody that they, they think they're the, the smartest person in the room. And, uh, and don't nudge the person beside you. Uh, they're probably thinking it's you, but they're not. And what usually ends up happening, it's because they're maybe very brilliant in a certain area of their life, or they're you know, dumb as a box of rocks, and they don't know they're even ignorant in areas, one of the two, but they'll think, since I am brilliant in a specific area, specific area, I must be brilliant in all kinds of areas. It's not true. None of us are brilliant in all kinds of areas. You end up gaining wisdom and knowledge by being in the field of endeavor for a long period of time, and so they may be really wise in that, but they think, because I'm wise in that, I'm wise in everything. Well, that's not true. None of us are. And so what, generally, we say those people are legends in their own minds, you know, just in their own head. That's where it's at. Now, before we get too snarky, I want you to know something. We all got a little bit of that in us. Darlene and I were at a restaurant one time, and the uh, location was good, the menu was good, but it just wasn't happening. You ever been to a place like that? And the outside needed some work, the inside needed some work, the service was okay, the food was barely above okay, and we're sitting there eating, and I go, man, if I owned this restaurant, I'd do this and that and this and that, this place, this place would be overhauled. This place would be the happening place in the region. This place would be reservation only. This place would be standing room only. And, you know, I'm going through all the things I'd do if I owned that restaurant. But I'm going to let you in on a little something. Let's see how good of a guesser you are. How many restaurants do you think I've ever owned? <laughs> if you said none, you're right, zero. Now, you may say, well, maybe you've never owned a restaurant, but how many restaurants have you managed or supervised or overseen? You got a guess? None. How about this? How many restaurants have I worked in, either as a janitor, a cook, a host, a server? Uh, how many have I even worked in? None. You're right. So I would not be the best person to say, if I own this place, bless God, I'd do this and this and this. Oftentimes when that happens, too, we're throwing lots of money at it. You know what I mean? I would redo the parking lot for $100,000 and redo the building for $100,000 on the outside and $150,000 on the inside, and I'd redo the kitchen for another $100,000. Next thing you know, I'm sure the owner would say, yeah, the place would be a lot better if you want to have me $500,000, you know, to do this work, because people, when they're doing stuff, well, if I was in charge, they act like money's no object. They know it's an object in their life, but not in other people's lives. So this is what I would do. So we all have a little bit of that in us that we think, ah, you know, I could fix all this stuff. But sometimes we have to pause and say, and I remember telling Darlene, hold it, I want to say something. I don't know nothing about running a restaurant or business. You know, why, why do you think you would? be able to turn around a company in a field of endeavor you've never experienced in your life. But I do want to say this. I will let you in on a little secret. How many restaurants do you think I've eaten in? <laughs> Somebody said all of them. No, <laughs> not all of them. Uh, probably hundreds, though. So I know a little something. And that's why sometimes they put out suggestion boxes, because sometimes the customer really does know something that might help your business. So I want you always to be learning. I want you to always have your antennas up. Back in the flood of, uh, was it 08 that the flood came through Columbus? 08? Uh, we were dining in uh, Texas Roadhouse, old location. It was on the uh, uh, west side of the river, and we live on the west side of the river. And all of a sudden, they come in, and they say, hey, we got to clear this place out. And I'm thinking, what is it, a bomb threat? Is it, you know, what's going on? It's a beautiful, sunshiny day. They said, it's, it's, a flood's coming. You know, we're looking out the window, a flood's coming. But if you remember, a bunch of water had fallen over quite a long period of time, and it was making its way down through Indiana. So we left, and I think, flood's coming. Well, I look out Eastbrook Plaza, for those of you who know Columbus, in the back behind Eastbrook Plaza, there's about 
two foot of water, and there's like mattresses. There's a mattress store there. There's like mattresses floating down the street back there. So we got home, and the Bringle family, they were, the family used to come here, they lived on the east side of the river, and they were on the west side of the river and couldn't get back to their home, so they came over to our house, and it just it never got better. And so finally, they ended up spending the night. And young Bringle boy, Isaac, he was probably five or six in the moment, we were having breakfast, and he looked up at me, and he said the words that every pastor longs to hear. He looked at me very seriously and said, I don't like church much. I said, okay. But I'll tell you what, I'm leaning in because I'm not thinking like a five or six-year-old, but I want to know what a five or six-year-old thinks about. So I'm going, well, what could we do? Because I'm, I'm dead serious. I'm like actually leaning in, trying to get some information out of this five or six-year-old because they may really say something. You go, wow, that's inspiring. That was not the case this day, but that could happen. So I said, what do you think we could do? And they said, we need more fighting. We need more fighting. Now, I know there's a lot of churches out there that have plenty of fighting going on, but he wasn't talking about infighting and political fighting and all kinds of fighting. He meant WWF, WWE fighting. Now, seriously, what he meant, because I said, what do you mean by fighting? So he pictured we'll all have our outfits on. We'll go into kids' church. We'll, we'll, you know, clothesline people. We'll pile drive them on the floor. We'll have a wonderful time fighting. I didn't think the parents would go for it. So I said, well, what's, what's another idea? He said, we need dirt bikes. Now, what five or six-year-old doesn't want a dirt bike? So he said, we, if we had dirt bikes and ramps and all this, again, I don't think the parents said, let's put our five-year-olds on dirt bikes and have them ride around the church. But I do want to say there's nothing wrong with listening, leaning in, and see if you might get a good idea because there's a lot of good ideas out there even from unexpected places. We never implemented any of those. But the church ministry, the children's ministry has done pretty well without them, so I think that's, that's okay. But Peter is going to tell us some things. Last week we did not look at those first seven verses in 2 Peter 1. We're going to do that today. And uh, he's discovering that, or communicating them, that you have discovered some real knowledge. Peter is really saying, I know that I know that I know some stuff, and I know that I know that you know some stuff because I've taught it to you. He said, you have great knowledge about salvation, great knowledge about God, great knowledge about the kingdom. And he said, even though you're firmly established in this, even though you're firmly established in this, until I die, I'll keep drilling this point home, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Jesus, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Jesus. And he begins to tell the people, you have knowledge, and it's good knowledge, because we need sound knowledge to advance forward in the things of God. Now, there is a knowledge and a wisdom that's available from God, and Peter talks about it, Paul talks about it. It's a knowledge that's different than the knowledge of the world. The knowledge of the world is limited. The knowledge of the world is ever-growing. That's why things that we believed were absolutely true, and we said they were true, and we told people, you don't believe this, you're idiots, they're now not true. Do you know how often I had to sit on the sideline of a swimming pool growing up after I ate? Every time I ate. I had to sit alongside the pool for 20 minutes. I think my mom made me sit 30 just to be safe. Because remember, I've eaten in a lot of restaurants. And so she said, you, you can sit, a, sit 30 minutes. That was the prevailing wisdom. If you didn't believe it, you were an idiot. You, do, you didn't know what facts were all about. Well, then I find out when I'm about 35, yeah, that's not true. Yeah, we used to think that was true. That's not true. Now, why? Did people just make that up because they wanted to abuse little kids? No, because that was the prevailing wisdom of the day. But we keep gaining more information, more knowledge, and wisdom, worldly wisdom and knowledge begins to grow and grow and grow and, and oftentimes become more accurate. And sometimes it actually atrophies and deteriorates primarily because 
God starts to interfere, and they don't want God to interfere. And so sometimes you have to be really foolish because you're trying to protect your life and keep it away from God. It happens all the time. There's um, a problem with math. Do I have a math, any math teachers here? Hold your hand up high if you're a math teacher. Any math teachers? See, there's a problem. There's a problem. How many of you have ever taken a math class? Okay, three. No, for, the, for those who are watching, there was a, I think everyone's hands went up. When I was a kid, they had something called new math. I'm going to let you in on something. I'm old now. There's always new math. I would do a problem. My mom would watch that. She'd say, what in the world was that? You got the right answer. How'd you get there? And I said, here's how I did it. She said, that's crazy. Here's how we used to do it. And I said, that's crazy. Because I think there's a secret math Illuminati that gathers and says, we're going to teach a generation that this is how you do it. And then after they all get really good at that, we're going to change it for the next generation just to, just to frustrate the parents. And then the next generation, the next generation. Chloe Combs is over at our house a few weeks ago, and she's working on math. And so I'm looking at the math, and she's doing a math problem. I go, wow, that's crazy. I never saw it done like that, but she got the right answer. I said, here's how we would do it. And she said, that's crazy. Guess what? New math. There's always new math. Now, I never had a problem with math until they did the story questions. You know what I mean by the story question? You're on a train going 30 mile an hour eastbound, there's a train going westbound, 22 mile an hour, blah, blah, blah. Okay. I, I don't want story questions because there's too many variables. I mean, if you want to give me what is 10 minus 3, I got that. But I don't want a story question. You know, they come and say, okay, Tracy. You have 10 chocolates. Your friend asks for three. How many chocolates do you have? 10. I, I have one less friend, but I still have 10 <laughs> chocolates, okay? Because there's too many variables in the story. Now, that's, that's true. Had you used asparagus or some Brussels sprouts or beets, I might have said, okay, I now have seven, but you know, there, there's too many variables in those, those questions like that, math questions. But the world often says, uh, we got this knowledge. And by the way, I'm, please, if you're hearing me say I'm opposed to knowledge, I am not. I like to learn. I would be one of those people who could be, you know, go to school forever. I mean, I like, you hear people say, they're professional students. I thought, oh, that'd be an awesome job. You know, I would, I would love that. And in Romans chapter 1, though, we, we find this word from Paul talking to the Romans. He said, furthermore, just that they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. See, in these verses we're going to look at in Peter, three times in the first eight verses, he brings up the knowledge of God or the knowledge of Jesus. Furthermore, just that they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not be done. Now, we're also going to explore something else about God because we, we say to ourselves, see, he's so mad, he's so angry, he's so upset. I mean, he says, well, I'll just give you over to a depraved mind then. I actually think God's incredibly generous because basically what happened is there's people who say, I don't want to have anything to do with God. I don't want God in my life. I don't want God in my business. I don't want God, I don't want God messing. I want to do life how I want to do life. I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whom I want to do it, how I want to do it, where I want to do it. That's how I want to do life. And so God, please stay out of my life. And so God says, okay, 
I'll turn you over to a depraved mind. Now, the, the words in our culture versus biblical knowledge of God culture, depraved is not a real nice thing to call somebody. You know, you're depraved. But it really means corrupt or evil or sinful. But when you think about God, God is impeccably holy. He's impeccably righteous. The scriptures, Paul tells Timothy that he's immortal, he's invisible, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful. He, he exists in this unapproachable light. So you have God here, and then we say, I don't want to do life like you want me to do life, God. I'm going to do it like I want to do. Down here is a sinful, hurting, broken person, and God says, fine, go ahead and do it. If, you, if that's the way you want to do it. I think it's incredibly generous and kind of God. He will let you go ahead and do that. So the knowledge of the world and the knowledge of God, sometimes God gets in the way of what I want to believe. That's why for months, probably six months ago, it seemed like I was on this every week. There's this verse that really drives people crazy. They don't mind having a little bit of Jesus in their life. They don't mind him, you know, you know, being in the, you know, the guest house or something. But the scripture says this, that when we come to Christ, we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. And there's the problem with Christianity, because all of a sudden God's going to get in our business. Now, the beautiful thing about God, one of the many beautiful things about God, is we come to him right as we are. We come to him with all of our baggage, all of our brokenness, all of our, all of our misconceptions, all of everything, but we start saying, hold it, I'm not living for myself anymore. Because we read something in the Bible, and the Bible says, he who is stealing must steal no more. And you think, well, that's my side hustle. So what am I going to do now? I, I don't think he really means I don't need to steal, but, you know, other people ought not to steal. Bank robbers ought not to steal. But, I mean, I'm, I'm not a bank robber, you know, so we always start categorizing. But, no, we have to look at that and say, ah, even though uh, stealing is my second profession, I got to stop stealing. So I'm no longer living for myself. I'm living for God. And that's how we begin to grow. So let's look at 2 Peter here. The verses we talked about that we didn't really look at last week. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Now I mentioned that last week, so I'm not going to get into it again today. But basically, G Peter was saying, I didn't get like a gold medal salvation and you got a participation trophy salvation. We all got the same precious salvation in relationship with God. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Who wouldn't like that? Grace and peace be yours in abundance through our knowledge of God. He's going to mention it three times in eight verses. Through our knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Some translations say for life and godliness. I like either one. Put them together. You got a godly life. Through our knowledge of him. There it is again. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Did we come to God by our own glory and goodness or by his? His. His own glory and goodness called us and brought us near. And he wants us to participate in the divine nature. It says, through these, his glory and goodness, he has given us his very great and precious promises. So that through them, the very great and precious promises, you might participate in the divine nature. God wants us to participate in the divine nature, in his nature. That's a growing process to understand that and get involved in it. Participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Having escaped the corruption of the world, so we, we get to say, oh, do I want to participate in the divine nature or do I want to participate in the corruption of this world? Escape the corruption of this world. How, where did the corruption of the world come from? By evil desires. Now, there's another problem. Okay, God called me depraved. God called me corrupt. 
God called me evil. You know, that's the problem I got with God. Well, again, God lives in unapproachable light. When we're sin sick, hurting, and broken down here, and we're making decisions out of our own flesh and carnality and sinfulness, that's evil compared to God. That's corrupt compared to God. And we think these words, these words really are big words, but we get offended by them when really those words ought to break us to say, hold it, I need to examine my life. See, I'll give you an example. When I was a, a four or five-year-old, at four years old, we moved from the, from the bustling uh, city of rugby into the metropolis of hope. Don't know if you've heard of either one of those. I was telling somebody one time, I said, I was, spent my first four years in rugby, and they said, where's that at? And I said, between Hope and Hartsville, and they said, that's not helping me. And I said, okay, well, just never mind, it's just a little town. And so we moved to Hope, and we're at the, on the east side of the square, at that time was a store, I, I think it used to turn into the license branch, but it used to be what was called a five and ten. You ever heard of a five and ten? We also called them dime stores. Now, we've, we've inflation's changed things a little, because now we went from dime stores to dollar stores, and then that's not good enough, so now we got five and under. Not looking forward to the hundred and under store, you know, where, hey, there's stuff in here that, you know, half the stuff you can get for a hundred bucks. Um, so five and ten, things you could buy for five cents, ten cents. So I'm in there, I'm four or five years old, and I, I got a problem, I need some help here, and I know you think my life is all smooth and everything, you're going to know different when you hear this trauma. I'm in that store, and I am telling my mom, I need some caps for my gun. Oh, she ain't getting it. She's not excited about this. She's not motivated about it. I don't even know if she's paying attention to me. So I'm doing everything four or five-year-old can do to get her to understand the importance is what cowboy goes out to battle without some ammo? And so I'm needing some caps for my cap gun. She's not doing it. Now, I knew this, and my parents, by the way, were not what I would consider super strict disciplinarians. You know, they would spank us at times, never got beat, you know, not even close. But I did know this. I could throw a temper tantrum in the store. I wouldn't get anything. Probably wouldn't even get a ride home. Probably would have just, that would have been it because that didn't fly in my family. And so she's not going to get me the caps. What choice do I have? I have to take matters into my own hands. Literally. I go over to the cap section. I grab some caps. Stick them in my pocket. I'm really shocked I got away with it because most four or five-year-olds aren't great shoplifters, you know. So, uh, you know, at least I didn't carry them up in my hand and try to get out the door. So I had some kind of problem or some kind of theory to this. And, and I get these caps. Now, the desire to steal the caps, by the way, I was old enough to know that was wrong. I knew that was wrong. The desire to steal those caps, guess what, was evil. And that action was corrupt. Now, I'll show you a slide here for those that, that uh, know what a, there you go. Okay. Now, you say, wow, that, that's not evil or corrupt. Yeah, it is. Oh, but you're, you're a little four or five-year-old. Doesn't matter. That's why the whole theory the world has that we're inherently good is not true. We're inherently bad. We need a savior. We're sinners in need of a savior. Now, the cab gun here, in case you're not familiar with that, you got these roll of red caps, and man, it's a cool system. You put it in there, and the faster you pull the trigger, I mean, it's not a six-shooter anymore. It's like a 50-shooter. You keep pulling the trigger, and little caps go up, and then you tear them off, and you keep shooting. Every now and then, though, you get a dud. Remember when you get a dud? It's like, I just got ripped off of one of my bullets, you know? And so there's a cap gun, in case you wonder what it is. 
And the, the desire to steal the caps is, is evil. And it's, it's corrupt. So we've got to change the way we think and see how, how does God look at things. How does he look at things? So we want to participate in the divine nature. We want to escape the corruption of this world caused by evil desires. And for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. Now, we did hit this verse last week. For if, if's a conditional word. We all understand that, right? If we ever were at the table and if you finish supper, you'll get a dessert. If meant, if was conditional. It says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, God doesn't say we have to arrive, we're growing, we're growing, they will keep you, these qualities, these virtues, will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your, there it is again, your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's seven virtues listed, it says add to your faith, then you list seven things. Five of those are found in Galatians 5 in the fruit of the Spirit, and so there's something that needs to be cultivated in our lives that keep us from being ineffective and unproductive. Now, you notice it didn't say, if you don't have these seven virtues, uh, you're, you're going to split hell wide open. It didn't say that. It said, as a believer, you're going to be ineffective and you're going to be unproductive. I don't like being ineffective and unproductive. I like being in the game. I don't want to sit at the bench. I want to get in the game. I hope you all want to get in the game. Now, we look at another right-hand person of Jesus. Peter was one of Jesus' right-hand men. He has told us that knowledge, wisdom, how we think about things, how we see things, the knowledge of God is extremely valuable and extremely important. And then Paul, who was obviously chosen by the resurrected Jesus, he came down and, and said, we're going to get another apostle here, and he picks out Paul, and Paul writes these things to the Ephesians. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, in this use of the word Gentile, means pagan or unbeliever. Now, there was a point where Gentiles became Christians, Jews became Christians, but in this illustration, it means an unbeliever. You must no longer live as the Gentiles or the unbelievers do in the futility of their thinking. Now, you're going to notice, Paul's going to pretty much say the same thing Peter did with a different choice of words. So I'm hoping one or both of them will impact us today. The futility, the emptiness of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Ignorance is not a bad word. It means you're lacking knowledge. We are all ignorant of more things than we have knowledge about. And so he said, but we don't have to be ignorant. And here it says they're, they're ignorant. And it says this ignorance is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. You see what's happening here? There are some people who didn't think the knowledge of God was worth keeping. That's what we read earlier. And these, he's saying some people, they've hardened their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality. Now, sensuality is often used as a sexual thing, but, but your senses desiring something, and it is, also includes that. But it can include lots of things. And so it says, having lost all sensitivity, we're supposed to be sensitive to God. Our conscience needs to be sensitive to God. But having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. See, sin just keeps wanting more, more, more. Now, I know that my illustration in Hope at the Five and Dime, you know, talked about my cd 4a into the underbelly of the crime world and hope but that was my one and only uh shoplifting spree but what happens is when we start sinning it tends to make you want more and more and more now i didn't get into dealing drugs as a four or five year old but i've heard this that people who take drugs 
want more and more and more they, they, because they no longer get the high or whatever it is they're looking for, so they've got to try more and more and more. And the same thing can happen with sin. And then it says to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. Now, that's not a bad translation. I like that translation, but I want to expand our concept of greed. We think of greed generally as money and materialism, but you can be greedy for all kinds of stuff. And the way the NIV used to translate it was this. They want to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Or they're greedy for more, more impurity, and more of anything, more, more, more. That, however, now listen to what Paul's going to teach us. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. You see this whole concept of knowledge that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. That's the knowledge of Jesus. The truth is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. Now, there's a super spiritual concept here. You were taught to put off your old self. So you take off the old self and you put it aside, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires. Sounds similar to what Peter said, that escape the corruption of this world caused by sinful desires. And we were trained and taught to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self. Now, here's the key. Are you with me? Put on the new self, created. The new self is created. The new self is created to be like God. Your old self is not created to be like God. It's fallen, it's sin sick, it's hurting, it's broken. You can try to turn over a new leaf. You can try to learn new habits. All that may be, you know, a fine thing to do, but it never saves you. You've got to take off the old self, put on the new self, because it's created to be like God. It is created to be truly righteous and holy. So we got this new self that already has this predisposition to holiness and righteousness and right living. So what are we going to do to move forward? We're going to capture a little truth today about how to apply spiritual things to create spiritual transformation. Not to create, not to use natural things to cause a spiritual transformation because it doesn't work well. In fact, we don't have the verses today, but I'll give you where to look. In Colossians 2, 20 through 23, Paul's talking to the Colossians, the church at Colossae, and he says, hey, guys, I know some people are coming in, they're telling you, you just need to get stricter on yourself. You need to follow these ceremonial laws. You need to have very rigid, very very strict rules and regulations. He said, uh, you need to, you need to uh, make sure that you treat your body harshly, make sure that you really are making yourself, you're going to make yourself behave. And Paul talks about all these things. He says they, they have these regulations for men. Jesus talked about that too one time. Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, you will not do the word of God to honor the traditions of your fathers. Those were rules made by men. See, they would say, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? It wasn't a hygiene thing. It was a ceremonial washing. They'd have this little bowl and they'd dip their fingers in there. It was a ceremonial wash. Why don't they wash their hands before they eat like the tradition of our fathers. Well, Jesus was basically saying, that ceremonial washing does nothing to make your hands clean. It's just a tradition of the fathers. And so, but they were upset. It's funny, they didn't say anything about they don't wash their hands properly for health reasons. They're just concerned about that, that ceremonial washing. And so Paul's saying, you got all these rules and regulations, this self-imposed worship this harsh treatment of the body. 
and it makes you look really devout because people look at you and go, wow, those people are serious Christians. Those people are really for real. Self-imposed worship, strict regulations, harsh treatment of the body. I don't know if you know this, but early, about 400 years after uh, the Gospels, after the Scripture was written, uh, there were some ascetic monks, and they, they really would treat their bodies harshly. You read some of the stories, it's amazing what they would do. One guy lived on a, a platform 50 feet in the air uh, that was like four by four, lived there for like 30-some years to show his dedication and commitment to God. What was not uncommon at all is they would take a, a whip, and they would, they would take a whip, so if they misbehaved, they would take this whip and say, oh, you stupid Christian, you got to behave. Only they'd take the shirt off, and it probably have bone in it and stuff like that, and they would whip themselves and beat themselves because they say, you're not going to behave that way. Harsh treatment of the body. Self-imposed worship. Okay, if you're going to behave like that, you're going to that corner, you're going to kneel and gravel, and you're going to recite uh, Psalm 23 two times. You see, self-imposed worship. Here's something you have to do. You did wrong, here's what you have to do. You've got to say the Lord's Prayer. You've got to say Psalm 23. You've got to do whatever. Harsh treatment of the body, self-imposed worship. And Paul gets down and he says, you know, all that stuff makes you look really spiritual, but there's one problem. It's a big problem. He says, it does nothing to curb your sensual desires or your sin. Nothing. All the beatings I gave myself, nothing. All it does, if anything, is it begins to pump you up and make you proud. Because look at how people are bragging about how spiritual I am. And you know the other thing it does? Is it shows people, I can never live like that. I can, there's no sense of me even trying to be a believer. No sense of me coming to Jesus, because that's something I can't do, not interested in, do, in doing. So Paul's trying to tell these people, it doesn't work. So what does work then? How can I grow in holiness? How can I grow spiritually? How can I be effective? How can I be productive? Last week we talked about how to be fruitful and how to be joyful. Wouldn't it be nice that all the believers were filled with joy? You say, well, but we might have problems. Well, if you look at Stephen when he's being stoned to death, I don't know about you, I call that a problem. They're lobbing huge rocks and killing him, and his face shines like an angel. And he says, Lord, do not lay this sin to their charge. The heavens open up. He sees Jesus sit at the right hand of the Father. He, he's, he's filled with joy in the midst of this. So what, what can we do? It comes down to the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and how Christianity works that we've been talking about. What Jesus teaches, not what the world teaches. What does Jesus teach? What's the knowledge of God? At one point, Jesus tells a parable about this shrewd, uh, this shrewd servant who pulls some strings, does some stuff, gets himself out of a problem. It's interesting. At, at the end, it says his master, I mean, the, the servant's just ripped off the master, but the master pauses and says, I got, I got to say, I admire your hustle. I admire your shrewdness. And then Jesus says the people of the world know how to behave in their kingdom better than the children of light know how to behave in theirs. The children of light don't really understand how to do their thing. That's because we need to come into the knowledge of God, and we're always trying to get the knowledge of the wor world to teach us how to do Christian things. And it doesn't work well. Now, there are, poly there are principles that bridge both the world and the Christian faith. You know, the Bible says we should study the word. Well, the world will teach you that study is a good thing. So some things cross over, but for the most part, if I'm going to be spiritual, I've got to focus what causes spiritual things. Knowledge can puff up. But the knowledge of God, 
it never changes and it helps to develop me. So I have to say, hold it. The scripture said I need to put off my old way of doing things. I need to put off stealing. I need to put off anger. I need to put off rage. And I need to put on. And so there's always this concept of taking off and putting on, not trying to get my anger to behave. There's some value in that. But I need to put it off. I need to get rid of it and put on something else over here, put on some joy, some peace. And so here's some things to think through that will help us on our journey to grow in God. And they're doable, especially with the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. First of all, having the knowledge of God. Really start learning, well, how does God work? We spent several weeks just looking about the forgiveness of God and how we're made perfect forever. And I'm telling you, it does not make people want to sin if they really get, it, if they get a hold of it. it. It changes the way you see yourself and the way you want to behave, the way you want to live. That's a spiritual principle. So we need to acquire the knowledge of God. And then we need to apply a spiritual effort to develop spiritual qualities, attributes, and behaviors. Because most of the things mentioned in Peter and in, in Galatians 5, they're often called fruit. I want you to know something about fruit. Fruit's nurtured. You can't beat an apple tree into producing apples. It's nurtured. And so what we have to do as believers, we have to say, hmm, how can I nurture, how can I foster an environment for growth? My, my grandma and grandpa uh, had an apple orchard. My uncle took over the homestead after they were done, and the apple orchard was out there, and they had wonderful, busting, fruitful apple trees. And they didn't get out there and demand that that apple tree produce apples. They didn't get out there and say, hey, if you don't produce more apples, you're going to hit the ground, give me 20 push-ups. They, they didn't do any of that. They created an atmosphere. They put a fence around it so that animals that want to tear it up and destroy it couldn't get in. They would make sure that the, the bugs were gone. They would do everything they could to nurture an environment for growth. And it worked. Because I remember there's this one tree, we would have to put, bring out like two by fours. If, if you've ever seen an orchard, you might understand it. And prop up the branch because it was so full of fruit it was actually breaking the branch off the trunk. That's a cool, wouldn't it be nice to say, God say, hey, you're going to have to send a couple more angels down for them to hold up their branches because they're bearing so much fruit, you know, we, they can't even hold it all. That'd be a good kind of problem to have. So we're going to apply things. I'm going to spend time, you're doing it right now, you're in the house of the Lord. You're in an atmosphere that can create an opportunity for spiritual growth. Now, we don't have church 24-7, so what do we do? Well, we have our own personal quiet times with the Lord. And that can look a thousand different ways, but you need one. A little time in the Word, a little time in prayer, a little time pondering things. Then you can take like a verse or an idea or a concept, and you can think about it all day long. That's how you meditate on the law day and night, the Word of God. And all of a sudden, you find out, wow, you know what? It's not so much uh, that I'm having to be at an altar for hours and hours on end because my life becomes an altar. I'm, I'm living for him. I think about him. He's on my mind all the time. And you'll get to a place where you do that, where everything makes you think about God. Now, that's where the world sometimes do think we're crazy because, and, and you, you might have to be aware of that around, you know, a lost person, but I just blame everything on God. So if we're out in a jam-packed parking lot and I get a space up front, I say, praise God. Now, somebody might say to me, Tracy, atheists get places up front. That's true. 
but don't rain on my parade. I'm thanking God for it. They can think whatever it is they would think. I don't know what an atheist would think. So you're starting to thank God. You know, you, you get a raise at work. Praise the Lord. And somebody goes, everybody got a raise at work. I don't care. I'm still going to praise God. I'm telling you, I think about God a lot. I, I'm not joking about this. I, you think I got it easy? I had to push mow my lawn, okay? Takes almost 40 minutes to do it, too. It is self-powered, but I do do it. And so I'll be walking around there. I'm not joking about this. I'll be walking around, and I'll hit something, and, go, oh, and I'll go, oh, thank you, God. It didn't hurt my ankle. Praise the Lord. I'm not joking about that because I've twisted my ankles before on dumb things, and, and so I'll, I'll thank God for not twisting my ankle. He'll say, well, lost people don't twist their ankles either sometimes. I don't care. Don't rain on my parade. I'm thanking God. I'm going to have a heart of rejoicing about everything. Thank the, just develop a God consciousness and know who we are in Jesus. Know who we are in Jesus. We are his beloved. He's crazy about you. I mean, I'm, again, that does not make me want to sin. That makes me want to please the Father. You know, I, I just, I'm confused when people say, well, if we, we tell people God really loves them and, and that he, he's always got good thoughts about them and, and he, he forgave all their sins and he's not going to hold anything against them, they'll just, they'll just want to go out and sin like wild. I believe if we'll really get a glimpse of God, we'll say, I want to please him. I want to please him. So ponder those things this week. Begin to put them into practice in your life. And if you ever come to a place where you say, you know, there's something in that message I didn't quite get. It's, it's on Facebook. It's usually in a day or two. It's online. You know, there's no charge to look at stuff. And there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, there's a little segment I, I need to hit again. And you can find that. Just get online. Re, reprogram it. Write it down. Take notes. Take photos of the screens. Do whatever. And then apply that stuff to your life. And you'll be shocked at how little by little you're transforming. And your life is changing. So, Father, we thank you for this word.